Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. News Talk. Solid Talk. Hot Hot Talk. Talk Radio. Kevin O'Sullivan. Hear the world differently. Healthy debate. Talk first. Talk fast. Talk radio. Full contact, common sense conversation. Kevin O'Sullivan. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome one and all to the dependent vassal state of Kevin O'Sullivan right here on Talk TV. I'm standing in for the great man, the independent republic of Mike Graham will be back to rule the airwaves on Monday. Meanwhile, I've got a compellingly busy show for you today. Here's what's coming up. Harry's coming to his dad's coronation, but Meghan is not. Thank God for that. Collective sighs of relief as the Duchess of Netflix apparently decided she didn't fancy being booed by the baying crowd, reduced to a back seat in the congregation and barred from the money shop balcony scene. What a shame. Are you pleased Her Montecito Majesty is staying away from the King's big day? Or should she have accompanied Harry on his whistle-stop visit? 0344. 499-1000. A bombshell book about Charles and his feuding family is published today and I'm thrilled to say the author of Our King, my old friend and colleague Robert Jobson, joins me later to unveil a whole host of remarkable royal revelations. In other news, journalist extraordinaire and Talk TV's international editor Isabel Oakshot is standing by with her take on the big stories, including oh-so-Irish Joe Biden's latest gap which even by the geriatric president's low standards is a doozy. Uh, Not forgetting day three of the junior doctor's strike, which is still trundling along, despite the absence of left-wing firebrand leader Dr Robert Lawrence who, much to the fury of his fellow militant medics, has gone on holiday. Demanding a ludicrous 35% pay rise, the picketing physicians insist the great British public supports their life-threatening industrial action all the way. Do you? 0344 499 Plus, go woke and you go broke. That's what America's biggest beer company is learning this morning after losing a staggering $3 billion following an advertising campaign starring trans girl Dylan Mulvaney. Maybe sports giant Nike will now think again about using Dylan, who is not a woman, to promote women's sports bras. 03444991000. Still with trans issues, does new Scottish First Minister Humza Yousaf 
have a political death wish, he's launched legal action to revive the Gender Recognition Act that derailed his predecessor, Nicola Sturgeon, and forced her resignation. His nickname is Humza Useless. Now we know why. Interested to hear from all of you about this, obviously, but especially those of you in Scotland struggling under the iron fist of far-left, extreme, woke SNP rule. 0344 499 1000. Also, does the BBC have another Jimmy Savile scandal brewing? A former Radio 1 DJ has been quizzed under caution by police investigating allegations of serial sexual assaults. And still with the state broadcaster, I'll show you a Beeb reporter delivering a textbook lesson on how not to interview the world's richest man, Elon Musk, who says there's no decent comedy on the BBC. And I'll investigate fears that a major Pentagon secrets leak could trigger a chilling escalation of the Ukraine war. Are special force British soldiers really on the ground fighting alongside the Ukrainians? If so, there may be trouble ahead. And by the way, we stand with our colleague, Evan Gershkovich, uh, who works for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he has been taken prisoner by Russians in Ukraine. Uh, we'll be paying tribute to him and calling for the Russians to release our colleague. Uh, it's a terrible situation and we're all feeling it a lot. Uh, we all work for the same company. Uh, now, also, uh, finally, uh, is it good news or bad news that smacking kids is to remain legal in England? What do you think? 0344 499 1000. All that and so much more. So don't go anywhere. Stick with me right here, right now at the home of free speech and common sense talk TV. Let's spend Thursday morning together. And right off the bat, let's go straight to Talk TV's international editor, scoop getter extraordinaire. She was with me last night on the talk, Isabel Oakshop. Morning, Isabel. Good morning. How are you, Kevin? I'm very, very well. Uh, now, you and I discussed this last night. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but uh, your thoughts on the fact that Harry is going to attend the coronation, but Meghan isn't. Well, I think this is a rare act of grace by the Montecito moaners. <laughs> Unusually, they've done something selfless, which is seek not to provide us all uh, with the pantomime that would ensue if both of them had attended. Now, I know, Kevin, you're a bit disappointed because it would have made for better yep. <laughs> journalistic mischief uh, if the pair of them had turned up. And I do share that uh, disappointment just from the point of view of what fun and games we would have all had, examining every inch of the body language, every flutter of the eyelash, every bit of her outfit for the hidden signals that she was trying to upstage Kate or whatever. Uh, but they have, I think, done the right thing here. I think it was the least worst option uh, Prince Harry has to be seen to be there. And by all accounts, he's just going to fly in and fly out. He will be there. He'll be pictured there and then he'll get the hell out of Dodge. I uh, just should uh, once again mention that uh, at midday, I'm joined by Ro Robert Jobson, the royal author, whose new bombshell book, Our King, uh, packed with remarkable royal revelations, comes out at, uh, today. He'll be with me at midday. Uh, let's move on. Uh, Joe Biden uh, on his holiday in Ireland. Oh, sorry, his official trip to Northern Ireland and air. Uh, he's uh, touring 
He's touring the Emerald Isle today and he's made uh, another one of his characteristic gaffes. Uh, instead of saying uh, how pleased he was when the Irish rugby team beat the All Blacks, of course, that's the New Zealand rugby team. He said how pleased he was that the Irish rugby team beat the Black and Tans. Uh, we're going to play a sort of montage of all of his other gaffes uh, as we speak, Isabel. Uh, so uh, let's just have a listen to we'll just watching him fall off a bicycle now let's uh, and in a little while we'll hear his black and tans but this is quite uh, a gaffe to make in Ireland isn't it I mean head in hands absolute head in hands when I saw the headline I initially mistook the headline where it said that Biden had made a gaffe about the black and tans I thought it said he'd made a, a gaffe about black and trans and I was thinking <laughs> I was quite hopeful. I was thinking, wow, has, has Biden gone really politically incorrect? Has, had, has he had a one of his many senior moments and started, you know, insulting black and trans people? But no, this is all about his mistaken attempts to name the New Zealand All Blacks. I mean, I don't know anything about rugby, but I do know the All Blacks are not called the Black and Tans. Look, <sighs> uh, no, it, it's just a succession of um you know foot in mouth moments for the president i think the optics of this visit have been pretty dire um i think downing street will not be very happy at all that's putting it mildly uh, about some of the images that came out of yesterday honestly i don't think that the president recognized rishi sunak when he got off air force 1 i think he thought that sunak was some kind of junior aide and 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 you know rather dismissively swiped him aside so the sooner the president gets back to the us the better i don't think his presence does anything great for the all the very difficult issues that are still to be resolved the dup have made it very clear they're underwhelmed to say the least and what a pity he didn't choose instead to come to the much more diplomatically safe uh, option uh, and attended the coronation. Uh, now, listen, we're going to play, um, uh, Isabel, if you don't mind, we're going to play uh, the black and tan gaff and a, a few others as well. So uh, let's have a look at Joe Biden at his best. The town of Rolling Stone will be back and will be with you every step of the way. And I, did I, what did I say? I, I didn't, I said, rolling fork, rolling stone. I got my mind going here. And whether it's the United Kingdom or just today, we've got news that Rashid, Rashid Sanuk is now the prime minister. Places that have offered the hundred thousand, the hundred thousand, a hundred dollars, that'd be really good. I'd go back and get vaccinated three times. Got to say hi to me. We go back a long way. She was 12, I was 30, but anyway. You see this tie I have with a shamrock on it? This was given to me by one of these guys right here. It was a hell of a rugby player. And they beat the hell of the black and tans. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, this thing is, Isabel, I don't want to be disrespectful to a man in his winter years, but uh, he's an embarrassment, isn't he? Do you know, I don't actually think it is a matter of being disrespectful because this guy is the president of the United States, still the most powerful person in the world. And I think we're entirely entitled to comment and observe that he does not appear to be in full possession of his faculties. 
And I have to say that if he were a Republican president shambling his way through uh, these events, getting so many things hopelessly wrong, delivering speeches that are virtually unintelligible, (laughs) I think there'd be an awful lot less fuss. But the Democrats over in the US are curiously quiet about the fact that they seem to have uh, uh, chosen somebody who is really health-wise questionably fit for that office. Indeed, and we should stress that uh, the Black and Tans uh, were not a rugby team. They were British cops who were employed by the Irish uh, to keep the rebellious Irish in check, and they went over to Ireland. They were mostly former British soldiers, and uh, they were notorious. I mean, they beat the hell out of the Irish, they tortured them, they kneecapped them, and they killed them. So to uh, bring up the subject of black and tans uh, when you're talking about a rugby team uh, is a gaffe, uh, even by his standards, uh, on a very high level. Uh, let's quickly move on. Uh, the migrant crisis uh, continues apace. Uh, nothing seems to be happen- happening. Uh, remarkably, uh, after Rishi Sunak, uh, what's his name? The R- Rishi Sunuk, uh, as uh, Rashid Sunuk, as uh, the president calls him, uh, pledged to stop the boats. Uh, 1,166 came over over the past week. That's a record. They're not stopping. And it turns out that uh, diphtheria in this country now is on the sharp rise because it is thought that many of these migrants are bringing that disease over the channel. Well, Kevin, maybe you should get your face mask out because, you know, (laughs) face masks might prevent diphtheria. It's a about as effective against that as it is against COVID, we now have confirmed today. Uh, Look, this uh, channel migrant problem, and the government can shout all it wants about what it's going to do and make these ridiculous symbolic acts, saying, oh, we're going to put them all on some barge or we're going to send people to Rwanda. Nothing's actually happened yet, and voters will judge them, not on what they say they're going to do, but what they've actually done. Time is rapidly running out politically for this administration to show that they can actually resolve the crisis. And not that long ago, a few days ago, Suella Braverman basically admitted that she's got no real uh, ability to guarantee that this will be resolved by the end of this year. Um, So I don't think that voters are feeling remotely confident in the competence of this government to sort it out. But equally, they're probably depressed by the thought that Labour would be no better whatsoever. Okay, Isabel, uh, hold these thoughts. Uh, We'll resume this conversation after these messages. I'm talking to Isabel Oakshot, Talk TV's international editor. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan, and this is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studios. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Uh, welcome back. I'm still talking to uh, Talk TV's international editor, Isabel Oakshot. Uh, Isabel, in just a few seconds, I want to talk to you about this uh, Pentagon secrets leak, which potentially could trigger a chilling escalation in the Ukraine war. But we need to talk about our colleague, Evan Gershkovich, uh, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, who's been taken prisoner by the Russians uh, in the Russian city of Yekaterinburg. Uh, he was having a stake and suddenly he was swooped upon and taken away. He's been arrested for espionage. This is the first time the Russians have uh, arrested a foreign reporter since the Cold War. And basically, we demand that they let him go. He's just doing his job. He's reporting. 
Absolutely, we demand that. I mean, actually, the Russian regime's attitude towards foreign reporters has been quite surprising in some ways. I mean, they have allowed, for example, the BBC to carry on doing what they do. Um, BBC reports are not uncritical of the Russian regime. So the, so the, Putin has tolerated this up to a point. And what was a bit surprising with the um, Wall Street Journal colleague of ours, his final article, I don't know whether you've read it, Kevin, I mean, it didn't appear to be grossly provocative. It was a very balanced account of, of what was going on and uh, Russia's declining economic position, which is hardly a kind of state secret. You know, it's very well documented uh, that the Russian economy is uh, on its knees, not surprisingly as a result of the resources that are going into this uh, futile operation. So something about that piece appears to have tipped the regime over the edge. Um, and unfortunately, this fine journalist appears to be used, being used as a as a kind of example, I suppose, to the others. So whilst other reporters are still able to just about continue with their job within Russia, um, it is going to have a very chilling effect on how far they feel they can push it. Uh, and he's 31 years old and he loved Russia. He was a fluent Russian speaker uh, and uh, did his very level best in these difficult times uh, for the former Soviet Union uh, to uh, cut them some slack because he loved the Russians and he tried to tell their story. And for that, he's been arrested and banged up. And that's just wrong. And this nonsense about spying charges, I mean, we've heard this before, haven't we, with Nazanin Ratcliffe-Zahawi of, um, you know, she had a, a dual nationality, um, very notoriously held for years by the Iranians on trumped up spying charges. She worked for Reuters, uh, wasn't doing anything of the kind in terms of spying. Uh, but this is the catch-all phrase that's used. Um, you know, those that report in these within these difficult regimes, of which Nazanin was not actually one, are every day risking their life and liberty. Uh, they do an incredibly honourable job. And it is a great shame that Putin's regime thinks that this is a, a diplomatic risk worth taking. But he kind of knows that no one's going to be able to do anything about it. Well, once again, uh, we reiterate, our demand that uh, our colleague Evan Gershkovich is let go by the Russians because he in no way was a spy. He was a reporter. Yeah. He is a reporter and a very fine reporter for the Wall Street Journal and he should not be being treated like this. Uh, on the same tack uh, in terms of Ukraine, uh, Isabel, uh, your take please on uh, what's being called the new WikiLeaks, these leaks pouring out of the Pentagon. Uh, now among them, uh, the, obviously the secret services on both sides of the Atlantic, as they always do, are saying, oh yeah, it's full of lies, don't, tr don't uh, treat this seriously. Uh, but a lot of people are, and amid these uh, leaked documents, uh, uh, is the claim, the revelation that some people are saying, that British Special Force soldiers are on the ground in Ukraine fighting alongside the Ukrainians. Now, if the Russians, if Putin takes that seriously, that could trigger a chilling escalation, could it not? 
Well, um, so first of all, in terms of this leak, it is an extraordinary leak. And, you know, as a journalist, I, we all love these leaked documents. But the revelation that British Special Forces are in the Ukraine comes as absolutely no surprise to me. I 100% assumed that we would have a Special Forces presence there of some kind. You know, we are, along with the American Special Forces, we still have probably the best special forces in the world. And the Americans also recognize that. Our special forces are one of the, in a sense, the last remaining really proud aspects of our armed forces. They still get the resources they need. They are absolutely outstanding and world-class. And they would have been also in Syria over a long period in various shapes or forms. And when we say, uh, when the, when it's reported or suggested that they are fighting in Ukraine, I imagine that they are involved in rather more precision operations. It's not like they're just sort of being thrown in there, added to the troops. They will have very, very highly specific missions. Uh, they will be very, very dangerous missions. And they will go in and get out. You know, this will not be as if they've just sort of, you know, a bunch of them are just kind of on the rampage there. That's not what the special forces do. I think we British can be very proud that we're contributing to the effort in this way. Uh, we'll probably never know what missions they are involved in, although in due course, some of those operatives may be honoured for bravery. Uh, but even then, you only get a kind of fairly limited uh, description of what that operation actually was. So I don't think this changes anything in terms of um, how the Russians feel about what we do. I'm sure they also would have assumed that, that our special forces would have some sort of presence. Indeed. Let's come back home and uh, I want to get your take on the uh, doctor's strike. Uh, the junior doctors are in day three of what's been described as the most uh, damaging dispute industrial action in the history of the NHS. Uh, they're demanding a ludicrous 35% pay rise. Steve Barkley, the health secretary, says he won't even get round the table until they get more realistic. Uh, frankly, I would like him to get round the table and just tell him face to face, well, let's get real, because you're not going to get anywhere with this kind of standoff. And the longer the standoff goes, the more patients will die. That's the point that the doctors try to uh, obfuscate. They try to say, oh, no, patient safety is our priority. And they will. I try, I try to get a doctor on, on, to, to come forth on it the other day and they just won't answer the question. But it is true that every day in every way, while these doctors strike, just as it happened during the uh, nurses' strike and the ambulance drivers' strike, patients are dying. Uh, and uh, the doctors, nevertheless, uh, led by very militant BMA members, uh, say they have wide-scale public support. I'm not so sure about that. What, what do you feel? Well, I am a bit conflicted on this because in order to rescue the NHS, we absolutely must deal with the NHS's number one problem, which is a people problem. It is not a lack of money generally. It is a lack of money going to the key people that run the thing. And I don't mean the managers. I mean, the, the healthcare professionals, the most important, uh, who are actually dealing with patients. We don't just need to pay them enough. We need to pay them well because we are in a global healthcare market here and there is a shortage of healthcare professionals 
all over the world. And we have got to be competitive. At the same time, I deplore the spectacle of anyone striking. Frankly, it's not the way I think people should uh, negotiate better deals with their employers. And you are absolutely right that patients will die. We have nowhere near enough clinicians as it is. There's already far too many cancer cases going undiagnosed, scans being uh, put off and deferred, and you know people not being seen in a timely fashion. Um, so if the doctors are pretending this won't have that impact, they're frankly lying and they know it. Uh, this is very political. I spent some time yesterday looking through the entire Twitter account of the junior doctor who's leading this strike. And I couldn't find a single tweet that really focuses on what he's supposed to be doing, which is looking after patients. The whole thing is political. His entire social media output on that platform is all about how they want more money. Yeah. Uh, I would say at least their, their placards this time are basically all about more pay and not pretending that this yeah. is to do with patients, uh, because we all know it isn't. Yeah, they're trying to bring down the evil Tory government, of course. Uh, Isabel, fantastic to talk to you, as always. That was Isabel Oakshot, Talk TV's international editor. And when we come back, uh, we will be sticking with the uh, doctor strike uh, and uh, getting the latest as uh, day three of that industrial action, the most damaging industrial action in NH. As history unfolds before our very eyes. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studios. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back. Yes, it's uh, day three of the uh, junior doctor's strike, uh, described as the most damaging industrial action in NHS history. Uh, we're going to go to a picket line in a moment. And also, uh, we're going to talk to uh, a doctor who has reservations about this strike. Uh, but first, uh, we're going to go down to the Westminster Picket in London outside St Thomas's Hospital and talk to uh, Dr Ada Zembritska. She's the BMA Deputy Co-Chair and Professional Issues Anaesthetic Trainee at Whips Cross Hospital. Uh, good morning, Ada. Good morning. Uh, how's it going? Uh, are you uh, happy with the way your industrial action is unfolding? I am not happy with the fact that doctors were forced to come through with another set of industrial action because the government refused to engage with meaningful negotiations with us. But the atmosphere on the picket is amazing and the pickets are well attended, which I think just proves how serious doctors are in their demands for full pay restoration. Well, I, can, I can hear them being serious behind you, chanting away. Uh, but, uh, you know, spirited strike, uh, your staging. Uh, do you worry? Uh, I, I would do, first of all, let me ask you this. Do, do, is it realistic to ask for 35%? I mean, everybody knows that you're not going to get that. So why are you asking for just such an unrealistic pay rise? All we're asking for is full pay restoration, which means we want our pay to be brought back to the same level that it was in 2008, before we suffered a decade, decade and a bit longer of sub-inflation pay rises and pay awards. Uh, so essentially, at the moment, junior doctors 
the most junior junior doctors in their first year post medical school are paid only 14 pounds an hour. All we're asking for is for that to go up to 19 pounds an hour. And I'm sure that if you ask any person anywhere in the country if they believe that 19 pounds an hour is a fair wage to pay a doctor, you would struggle to find a person who disagree with you. Well, well I'm not entirely convinced of that, but uh, you know, you're entitled to your view. But uh, 30. 5%, 36%, you're not going to get it, are you? You know that. You're going to end up, if you're lucky, with something like 10%. So why ask for this astronomical amount? Uh, by the way, I think Steve Barkley should get round the table with you and tell, rather than saying it uh, in absence, as it were, oh, I'm not talking to them until they uh, come up with a more realistic demand. I think you should get round the table and tell you to your faces that you should come up with a more realistic demand. But it isn't realistic, is it? I believe it's unrealistic to expect uh, to for of the government to actually not provide a counter offer. We have tried to engage in talks with them since October. It's been a few months and they have failed to provide to engage in any sort of meaningful negotiations. Junior doctors are not worth any less than they were in 2008. And we are certainly not doing any less work. If anything, we're working even harder in even more understaffed hospitals, taking care of more unwell patients and more patients in general. And I think we deserve full pay restoration. But you won't get 35%. I mean, I, 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 everybody supports uh, your belief that you demand that you need more money, uh, you need a pay rise, fair enough, but 35% doesn't help, it just prolongs the dispute. Uh, can I ask you, uh, Ada, what, you, what do you think about your colleague, the strike leader, uh, Dr Robert Lawrenson, uh, who organised the strike and has now gone on holiday on full pay? How do you feel about that? So, as far as I'm aware, Dr. Lawrenson is on annual leave at the moment and I don't feel like I have any right to comment on his personal affairs in but his personal time he should be on the picket off. line with you, Ada, shouldn't he? Obviously, he's one of the strike leaders. You don't mind that he goes on holiday on full pay because you should mind. Dr. Lawrenson is not on holiday. He is attending multiple BMA meetings. He's not. He's uh, gone to a wedding. That are ongoing. He's not. He's not attending multiple BMA meetings. He's gone to a wedding. He's gone to his mate's wedding. That is true, but Dr. Yeah, well, Lawrenson so don't is say he's attending BMA, BMA meetings. This week. Yeah, look, Ada, Ada, let's drop BMA this. Let's drop. Ada, I know you're annoyed and so are a lot of your colleagues and you have every right to be. I side with you on that. He should be with you on the picket line and you know it. Uh, last question. Uh, do, do, are you worried? Your, your strike, like the nurses' strike, like the ambulance strike, obviously will cause deaths. Patients will die because of your strike. And you will say to me, oh, but before we went on strike, 500 patients a week were dying because there aren't enough doctors, aren't enough nurses, aren't enough ambulance drivers. Yeah, fine, fine, I've got that on board. But your strike, which you say is partly about patient safety, is not ensuring patient safety one bit right now. In fact, as you stand on the picket lines, people are dying. Uh, does that worry you? It is worrying that the government's negligence is currently leading to 500 excess deaths. No, no, one week might argue, Ada, it's your negligence 
that is causing the deaths right now? At the moment, the patients are being cared for in the yeah, hospital. No, by that, that, yeah, and they're, they're not really. They're not really. <laughs> you're out. You're are, at, at you, the moment. There's no patient in. Sorry. It's all right, Ada. Okay. Listen, listen. Honestly, uh, I, I wish you all well, uh, and I hope that very soon you deserve a pay rise. I hope you get round the table with Steve Bartley and sort something out. I really do. Uh, that was Ada Zembritska, BMA Deputy Co-Chair for Professional Issues. Uh, we're going to go now uh, to a GP in Harley Street, Doctor Doctor Arma Khan. Uh, good morning, Arma. Good morning. How are you? Uh, I'm very, very well. Uh, as I was trying to say now, it's always like uh, banging your head against a brick wall. But uh, you talk to these striking doctors and you say, look, you know, we respect your right to demand a, 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 a better wage. Everybody's got that kind of right. But uh, when you go on strike, when thousands and thousands of junior doctors go on strike, just as when the nurses did, just as when the ambulance drivers did, patients will die. And I find that a very worrying uh, uh, equation. You know, to, what no strike... No industrial action can ever be worth even one life, let alone hundreds. Sure. I think, I think it's, it's a very emotive sort of situation mm. when we're talking about people's health and, and people's lives. Um, I think there is a point at which you know, we have to say that you know, there has to be a sit-down discussion with the government. And I think the, the junior doctors feel that they have reached that point where they can only be listened to if they take industrial action. They had an industrial action before. It's gone up now to, to an extra day. And I think unless everybody sits down around a table and starts to negotiate, mm -hmm. then we're going to see more of these because there are issues within the National Health Service. We're aware of that. Um, I'm, I'm no longer in the National Health Service. I work privately, but during the lockdown, um, I went back and I supported the National Health Service, you know, at, at no extra cost to them. Um, but, you know, there are doctors out there who will support, and the senior doctors are now um, holding the fort um, where the junior doctors are no longer there. Now, I mean, one, one of the problems is that the whole National Health Service needs to be looked over. Yeah. Um, you know, during the, the sort of crisis we had with covid um, you know, centres were, were set up. They cost a huge amount of money and they were never used. We also had um, the issues with, you know, equipment, PPE equipment being bought, which was not fit for, for purpose. Huge amounts were spent on that. Uh, so I, I think, you know, th there, there is this emotive part to this argument. You know, can we be spending money better? We know that the support for the doctors has has diminished that they haven't got the support that they had and certainly when i was in hospital you know we we supported each other we did over and above and yes we weren't being paid that much but the support was there and we we knew that you know we we were providing a service um i come from a generation where we would never have striked yeah um, but i i sim you know on a, on a similar footing i've never lived through a situation you know where my real um, income has gone down over the last 15 years um, where, you know, where I can be told to go anywhere, I can't start a family. So there are conditions, not just the wages, but the whole National Health Service, I think, needs 
to be looked at and that there needs to be um you know an overview of how we're going to improve I think, things I think for the I, patients. I agree with you there Arma. uh mm. i think everyone would agree with that uh, uh would you join me in urging steve barkley the health secretary he says and I, i've got some sympathy with his standpoint which is 35 percent ludicrous unrealistic uh, until you until you make a more realistic demand i'm not getting around the table what i'd like him to do is to get around the table and tell absolutely. the junior doctors that face to face yeah yeah I think I think one stance is to say it's unreasonable, and on the face of it, it, it is unreasonable. I mean, nobody else is asking for that. Yeah. But on on when we look at the other aspect of this, you know, they, they want restitution of what what they should be at, and you know, the, uh, the economy may not be able to support that, and and that's fine, and, and I understand that. Um, and to be reasonable, I think what this we can look at this as an opening gambit. You know, this is yeah, what yeah. they've uh, asked for, and get it's round now the, ta- for get, the government to come. Get round the table. Get round the table. Let's let's sort this out Give as soon as possible. Yeah, Amir, uh, I'm going to have to call this uh, to a day, but uh, really good to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. That's Dr. Amir Khan, GP, former uh, NHS doctor, now a Harley Street doctor. Uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to be talking about Ulez. Uh, uh, Sadiq Khan, the, the London Mayor, is very annoyed because five councils have been allowed to challenge his bid to increase the ULES zone. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan and this is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studios. The home of common sense, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back. Now, ULES is coming to us all, particularly in London, but cities all over the country have ULES zones. Uh, This is the clean air system by which uh, motorists uh, are expected to spend uh, £12.50 a day uh, to uh, travel around the ULES zones uh, in Greater London, certainly. Uh, Now, uh, a lot of councils, uh, some of them Tory, uh, some of them Labour, have decided quite justifiably in my view, that this is not fair. It's not fair uh, to uh, poorer motorists. Uh, Sadiq Khan, the London Mayor, seems to think everyone with a car must be a millionaire. That's just not true, is it? Uh, uh, And he seems to think that uh, everyone should uh, be paying a high cost to keep Londoners and city dwellers all over the country healthy, that somehow or other uh, clean air is more important than people being able to afford to live, afford to drive. A lot of people, uh, you know, they need their cars, they need their vans for their businesses, and uh, this will put them out of business. Uh, So it strikes me it's a sort of greenery gone mad, and uh, several councils uh, agree with me. Now, uh, let's talk uh, to the deputy leader of the City Hall Conservatives and London Assembly member for Bexley and Bromley, uh, one of the boroughs that I think has launched legal action, uh, Peter Fortune. Uh, good morning, Peter. Good morning, Kevin. Now, your, your, your borough and other boroughs uh, have successfully uh, gone to the High Court uh, and been allowed to press ahead with a judicial review of Sadiq Khan's somewhat authoritarian ULES expansion. He's very upset, says that you people just don't care about the health of Londoners, don't care about the health of people. Well, we do care about the health of people. We do care about clean air, of course. We want a cleaner air city. Uh, But also, we want people to be able to earn a living. We want people to be able to get around. Uh, And your council, along with other councils, say this just is not fair to poorer 
motorists. Sadiq Khan seems to think everyone with a car is a millionaire. It's an old-fashioned view, and this ULAS expansion is not fair to ordinary motorists. Well, two things there, Kevin. First thing is is kudos to those five uh, authorities. There's uh, there's Hillingdon, Harrow, Surrey, which is outside of London, but their argument was that their yeah. residents are impacted when they're driving into London for you know work or to, to see relatives or whatever. And then there's my my own two boroughs, God's country of, of Bexley and Bromley, <laughs> who have um, put put this case forward to talk about the fact that not only is it unfair. But it's not actually effective. And, and I want to address this point about the air quality, because this is something that Sadiq Khan uh, goes on about all the time. There was an independent assessment, an independent impact assessment, they call it, um, uh, by, by Jacobs, which you can go and find. You can go and find it online. And in there, it categorically says that this expanded ULES zone, this zone that goes right out to the M25, is going to have very little impact on air quality. Now, this point, I think, sometimes gets lost because this is a money-making scheme, right? And the only way that it can be justified as a money-making scheme is to wrap it up in the air quality. If you go and look at the data, and I don't mean the data for inner London. I don't mean the data about the expansion to the north and south circular. I mean, what are the projections of what would happen if it went out to those leafy boroughs like mine? You know, we've got areas like Biggin Hill, huge, great big green fields and farmland. The impact on the air quality is negligible. So let that sink in. If it's not actually helping with air quality, what's the point of doing it? Well, as you quite rightly say, one suspects it's to raise money because he's got all sorts of financial problems. Now, uh, you know, he says that all of you who have challenged his ULES diktat, uh, you know, don't care about the health of Londoners. Well, we all care about the health of Londoners. But I, and I'm sure you do too, Peter, I care about the economic health of our great city. And I think that Sadiq Khan's war on motorists, and that's exactly what it is, he seems to hate everybody behind a steering wheel, uh, will uh, catastrophically wreck this city in terms of its economy. Yeah, and so the mayor always goes for ad hominem attacks or he likes to go to a headline. We've been really conscientious, actually, and you can go to our, our website, the City Hall uh, Conservatives website, to look at some of the arguments we've put to him because we've gone to reports about air quality. The other thing we've, we've looked at is what is the impact on, uh, on the less well-off. The, the, the bottom 10% decile um, in outer London uh, own cars. Okay, the majority of them own cars. Why? Because the infrastructure in outer London is not the same as it is in inner London. When I, when I look at some of those crazy people that, that sit at home and tweet at me every day, they say, just get on the tube. Okay, there isn't a tube. I represent Bexley and Bromley, right? Yeah, there isn't one, so, is there? Right in the corner, there's not a tube station in either of those boroughs. I'm closer to an airport than I am to a tube station. So people are using their cars to get around, to see their family, to, to run their small businesses. And the impact this will have on them is devastating. But the mayor doesn't want to address that. Why? OK, so he's going to put these ULES cameras in. Or he's going to try and put these ULES cameras in. You know, those those boroughs that we talked about earlier are doing a, a stellar job at trying to prevent it. But he put those cameras in to have the ULES charge for the first couple of years because of the, the natural churn of vehicles that ULES won't be bringing in enough revenue in two three years time but he's using this as a bridgehead for road user charging that's really concerning because there are people there are businesses now who are changing up their vehicles maybe they're taking out loans because they think okay i've got to get a compliant vehicle that's going to be irrelevant two three years down the line when he brings in the per mile user charging 
Then when he brings in the per mile user charging, how's he going to do that? Are our vehicles going to be tracked? Is he going to be watching your car going off to the shops or wherever? He is, he is opening the door here to policies which are really going to impact people's lives and solely because of the financial mismanagement of TfL under his watch. Yeah. Now, in central London, he's got plans. You know, he's the sort of cycle name fanatic, the pedestrian precinct fanatic. And in central London, right at the heart of the West End, so he's got this plan for something like six square miles of purely pedestrian area. Uh, so no vehicles allowed in or out, just a few bicycles and people walking. Now, in that area, of course, there are thousands of businesses. How yeah. do they get deliveries? How do they dispatch their goods? This kind of uh, project will kill businesses. It will kill them stone dead. Uh, yeah. He's really playing with the financial infrastructure of one of the world's greatest cities. And I fear destroying it. And if you go and speak to these businesses, if you listen to organizations like the FSB, the Federation of Small Businesses, they will highlight some of these concerns. But as has been proven, I think, with this consultation, which the mayor's office, I think it's fair to say, have interfered with and they've you know, taken away people's votes. He's driving an agenda. Excuse the pun. Mm. He's cycling an agenda. Um, which is which is more about him covering off the mismanagement in TfL in the same way that he's you know pushing these agendas around his failure to manage the police, his failure to manage the fire brigade, his failure to build sufficient housing. He's he's trying to drive this idea, this picture uh, that he's um, you know. Uh, an environmental champion. And I think that's got more to do with you know, the chairmanship of the C40 Environment Network, a book he's got coming out soon, and, and perhaps plans he has two or three years down the line. The reality is looking at the independent reports, talking to those organizations that study this stuff, talking to businesses, and most importantly, talking to residents, people trying to live their lives, they're telling him to stop. They're telling him not to do this. If he really believes this, if he really believes this is the right thing to do, we're only 12 months away from an election. Let's put it to the people. Yeah, good idea. Uh, I think greenery, extreme greenery, is the last resort of the political scoundrel. You know, oh, I'm trying to save the planet. Don't you want to save the planet? Oh, you oppose me. Oh, you're horrible. You don't care about the environment. Absolute nonsense. Uh, final question. Only got a few seconds left, uh, Peter. Uh, do you foresee, do you predict that your legal uh, manoeuvre will succeed? We're going to do our best to present the strongest case we possibly can. We believe that this is wrong for Outer London. We believe we've got the evidence to prove it's wrong for Outer London. And we would, we would hope that the legal system will back us up. I think it's wrong for inner London as well. I wish you all the best and very good to talk to you. Uh, that's Peter Fortune, uh, Deputy Leader, City Hall Conservatives and uh, the London Assembly Member for Bexley and Bromley. Uh, we have much still to come. Don't forget Robert Jobson, Royal Author, is with me at midday. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studios. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's like an alarm clock or something. Everybody, wake up! <laughs> anyway, let's get rid of that ridiculous music. Uh, it's time now for the second hour of our mid-morning spectacular. Uh, don't forget, at midday, royal author Robert Jobson, old friend and colleague of mine, will be in the studio talking about his bombshell book, Our King, which is published today. It's full of remarkable royal revelations. Tells the story of Charles and his feuding family. Can't wait for that, so stay tuned. Uh, also, in a little while, uh, I've got it. Yes, it's been uh, established that uh, smacking will still be, smacking your kids will still be legal in England. It isn't legal in Scotland. Uh, it's not legal, I believe, in Wales. It's that England is the last of the United Kingdom where if your kid's naughty, you can smack them. Elsewhere, that's against the law. Uh, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, let me know what you think. 03444991000. Is it really the state's job to tell you how to bring your children up? To tell you how to discipline your children? No one wants to beat children. No one wants to injure them. Uh, but uh, do you feel that a tap now and again uh, to stop them going into a busy road or something like that is justified and, and shouldn't be the business of the police? Or should it be the business of the police? 0344 499 Also, we're talking to another of my old friends and colleagues, Kim Sam Gupta, the Defence and Security Editor for The Independent. Uh, I think he's over in Ukraine at the moment. I want to ask him about our colleague, uh, Evan Gershkovich from the Wall Street Journal, who has been arrested in Russia on espionage charges, trumped up espionage charges, uh, and also to ask him what he feels about these leaks uh, from the Pentagon, uh, which some people are saying threatens stability uh, all over the world. So uh, lots to talk about with Kim and Hamza Youssef, the uh, new First Minister of Scotland, is doubling down on Nicola Sturgeon's disastrous gender identity act and he wants to revive it. He's launched legal action to do it, even though it derailed and ruined the career of his predecessor, Nicola Sturgeon. They call him Hamza Useless. That's his nickname. Perhaps we now know why. Uh, we're trying to get to the bottom of that. Uh, what do you feel? Uh, 03444991000. Basically, should male rapists be put into women's prisons in Scotland? They seem to think they should. Uh, now, uh, before we get to any of that, though, uh, let's talk about the BBC and welcome my 
first guest, uh, Rebecca Ryan. She's the campaign director of Defund the BBC. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, Kevin. Uh, now, off the, right off the bat, I want to talk about uh, the brilliant Elon Musk interview uh, <laughs> in which the BBC reporter delivered a textbook lesson in how not to interview the world's richest man. They say there's no good comedy on the BBC. You should see the Elon Musk interview. Uh, it's brilliant. Uh, but first, on a far more serious level, uh, mm. the question is, really, does the BBC have another Jimmy Savile scandal brewing? Does it have another Jimmy Savile scandal on its hands? Now, I should stress that the former BBC uh, DJ, Radio 1 DJ, Tim Westwood, who has been interviewed under caution by the police over five alleged sex offences stretching back over a 34-year period, vehemently denies these charges. But... Uh, the suggestion has people have said that this kind of behaviour has been covered up with the collusion of BBC executives over a long period of time. It's a familiar story. As I say, no one is saying Tim Westwood is guilty of these offences. Uh, this is an ongoing investigation. But uh, a difficult time for the state broadcaster yet again, Rebecca. Absolutely. And as you said, if this turns out to be correct, which, you know, th these allegations have been going on for some time against Tim Westwood. But these these incidents all happened, or, you know, the 20 years that he was at the BBC sits well within these these allegations, um, the, the complete 20-year period. And at what point, if this is found to be true, at what point do we stop saying it's one bad apple when you've got Savile, you've got Hall, and now potentially Tim Westwood as well? And at what point do we say that the BBC is actually complicit in this, you know, because they're, they're providing cover you know, people look at this, you know, much in the same way with sexual predators and Myra Hindley, that kind of situation. We could go, oh, well, they work for the BBC, so they must be OK. They're providing a platform for this kind of behaviour. Mm -hmm. And then not only are they providing that platform, but they are promoting and covering up um, when these allegations, you know, the, the smoke starts to starts to um, signal. Um, and that's really disturbing for the British people who are being bullied into paying for this organisation to continue this kind of behaviour. And, it, you know, people people want to stop paying the licence fee. They want to put an end to this kind of thing. And if the BBC wants to carry on behaving in this way, it should be answerable to those who are voluntarily paying for it. Yeah, I mean, the trouble of the BBC, let's hope it's cleaned up its act now, but we know uh, that it organised uh, a nefarious cover-up of the mm -hmm. Martin Bashir affair yes. uh, when uh, several executives, including the future Director General, uh, Tony Hall, uh, colluded to, to make sure that the story of how Martin Bashir conned Princess Diana mm -hmm. into that sensational interview uh, back in the 90s, 25 years ago or so, so uh, they covered up then uh, and the truth came spilling out only recently. Uh, we know they covered up for Jimmy Savile. Uh, and when Newsnight, to be fair, its own programme, wanted to reveal the shocking truth about Jimmy Savile's reign of sexual terror, uh, the BBC said, no, you're not putting that out. You can't put that out because we're doing a special tribute to Jim Will Fix It, uh, starring uh, Shane Ritchie at Christmas. I mean... This is the problem with the BBC. It always has been an obsessively secretive organisation. It takes our money, but doesn't want to tell us anything about how it operates. Absolutely. And it's really um, 
unacceptable for the British people to be bullied into paying for this organisation. British people who don't watch the BBC, if they watch Sky News or Sky Sport, then, you know, they, they have to pay for a TV licence. And, you know, the BBC has got a charter which obliges it to journalistic excellence, which obliges it to impartiality, which obliges it to be representative. And yet it doesn't it doesn't deliver on any of those things. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, the British people are really getting to the end of their tether. And when they see these cases, mm. potentially with Tim Westwood, but with Savile and with Paul and all of these other situations where the BBC, rather than putting its hands up in the air, is covering its own back. And there is no way that an organisation that acts in that way is going to change. Yeah, there have and, been... And it, and it has to change. Indeed, there have been allegations. Uh, Tim Westwood was very close friends with some very senior BBC executives. And the allegation is, just an allegation not proved, uh, the allegation is that when women went to the bosses to complain about Tim Westwood's alleged behaviour, uh, they were ignored. And so should any of this be proved, should any of this come to be true, it's going to be a very difficult time. But as once again, I must stress, Tim Westwood has not uh, been charged with anything uh, and uh, denies these accusations strenuously. Uh, let's move on a slight, somewhat lighter note. Uh, Elon Musk, the world's richest man, well, he is now. So one week he's the world's richest man, the next week he's not, you know, the way it is. He's the owner of Twitter, mm -hmm. fabulously wealthy. Uh, he recently said, oh, the BBC's really biased. And the BBC went, oh, we're not biased. And he said, all right, fair enough. Uh, as it goes, you know, you're not that biased. Uh, uh, and uh, through all this, he kind of agreed to an interview uh, with a reporter. Uh, and the reporter sat down for a 90-minute interview with Elon Musk and basically delivered a textbook lesson on how not to interview uh, a very brilliant man. Let's have a look at some of the clips. You said you've seen more hateful content, but you can't name a single example, not even one. I'm not sure I've used that feed for the last three or four weeks. And I, well, then how did you see the hateful content? content? Because I've been, I've, been using, I've been using Twitter since you've taken it over for the last six months. Okay, so then you must have at some point seen the, you, for you hateful content. I'm asking for one example. Right. And, and I, you can't I, give a single I, one. And, and, and I'm saying... I, then I, I say, sir, that you don't know what you're talking about. Really? Yes. COVID misinformation. You You changed the COVID misinformation. Has rules. BBC changed its COVID misinformation? The BBC does not set the rules on Twitter, so I'm asking you. No, I'm talking about the BBC's misinformation about COVID. Does the BBC uh, hold itself at all responsible for misinformation re regarding ma masking and, and side effects of vaccinations and not reporting on that at all? And what about the fact that the BBC was put under pressure by the British government to change its editorial policy? Are you aware of that? This is, a, this is not an interview about the BBC. Oh, so. you thought it wasn't? <laughs> uh, poor old James Clayton. Uh, that's how not... You should do your research, James. Just don't go in there with vague accusations because Elon Musk, as we saw then, uh, wasn't having any of that. Uh, so uh, what James Clayton said was, since you bought uh, Twitter, it's been full of hate. My feed's much more full of hate. You know, so uh, Elon Musk quite reasonably said, OK, well, that's uh, uh, disturbing. Uh, give me one example. And he couldn't. Uh, this is an old BBC technique. You know, they, they'll, they'll hit you with vague allegations, but they can't get the details. Uh, yes. That was not 
how to interview Elon Musk, was it? And he really turned the tables on James Clayton, didn't he? It was absolutely beautiful, wasn't it? And yes. I think the thing is, it's, it's the sheer arrogance of this organisation that they think that they can go into an interview with the richest man in the world completely unprepared. And it's this this group thing from the BBC, which we've seen, you know, through you know for the last decade, particularly around the Brexit years, where they thought they could just sling accusations at people and hope it would stick, you know, calling people who supported Brexit racists and fascists and all of that kind of thing and ignorant. And they would sling these things and and you know generally you know people get a, a sense of oh well maybe they're right the BBC saying it you know people who aren't fully paying attention but the arrogance of going into an interview with Elon Musk without any shred of evidence to back up an, an accusation you know he's essentially saying to Elon Musk you're pushing uh, hate content you're you know you're a hateful person because you're pushing hate content and he has nothing to back it up whatsoever. And that's what the British people are seeing all the time from the BBC. This sort of this this background hum of you know the British people are are hateful. We're you know we're all pushing these negative uh, views, and it's just simply untrue. And the BBC needs to stop this you know relentless churn of negative information about the people who are being forced to pay for it. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's an article in one of the Sunday papers, and I don't know the veracity of it. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's been in the Spectator as well, where uh, Spectator, I think, and then translated, transferred to one of the Sundays, uh, where someone was saying the BBC routinely tells us that the insect population of the planet is dying. You know, it's dissipating mm -hmm. alarmingly. The ecostructure mm -hmm. of the planet is in danger because so many insects are dying out, so many species of insects. And apparently, uh, according to this article, according to this journalist, uh, there's no evidence for it. They just sort of put it out there. <laughs> well, because they've got this policy, haven't they, when they think that something is an accepted, uh, there's a general consensus that they can just literally go off off on one on on views that are completely unbacked up and going back to the charter and the bbc's obligations in order to be able to tax the british people mm. they they in that charter they're supposed to provide journalistic excellence you know they're meant to strive and deliver to have the best level of journalism you know that does the british people proud and we've seen for decades now that this is not happening from the bbc and it's just getting worse and worse and worse we've got a really low level journalist working at the bbc and this guy with absolute arrogance going into an interview with Elon Musk, which was clearly going to be about bias because that's why he'd agreed to the interview. Yeah. And to go, to walk into that was just absolutely priceless. It really was. I mean, I've got a lot of friends at the BBC uh, and uh, I'll tell you about them. I'm not accusing the organisation of this, but my friends at the BBC, if there's one thing they hate more than Brexiteers, it's rich people. Uh, Rebecca, <laughs> great to talk to you. We'll talk again on Sunday. That's Rebecca Ryan, campaign director uh, for Defund the BBC. We're waiting to get footage. Uh, we're hoping that US President uh, will soon meet... Uh, Irish President Michael D. Higgins. Uh, we're waiting for footage of that. We'll bring you that. But uh, after the break, we'll be talking about the SNP and Hamza Youssef's bid to revive Nicola Sturgeon's disastrous gender identity bill. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studios. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. 
Well, uh, Joe Biden, uh, the ancient US president, has arrived at uh, the Phoenix Park residence of the Irish president, Michael D. Higgins, in bright sunshine. He's arrived in his environmentally friendly 40-car cortege. Thousands of massive cars there, loads of blokes in sunglasses standing there. It seems to take this old boy about three hours to get out of a car. Uh, so we're waiting for developments there. We'll show you a bit of that when that happens. Uh, uh, but I can't get that excited about it, can you? Uh, you know, anyway, uh, let's uh, get into this final hour. I did keep promising you that uh, royal author uh, Robert Jobson will be joining me uh, right about now. Uh, but uh, he's had trouble with the traffic in London, don't we all? Thanks, Mayor. Uh, but he's parking his car now and he will be with us fairly soon uh, to discuss his amazing book, uh, which comes out today, Our King, full of remarkable royal revelations about uh, the king. Charles and his feuding family. So much to talk about there. Looking forward to that. Stay tuned for it. Uh, now, uh, before we get to that, uh, we need to talk about uh, Budweiser beer, Bud Light. Uh, they're owned by a massive company called Anheuser-Busch. Uh, and recently they hired uh, that uh, trans girl, uh, she calls herself a girl, uh, Dylan Mulvaney, uh, to promote Bud Light one of the state's favourite drinks. Uh, it's a big selling beer. Uh, so Dylan Mulvaney, the trans girl, was the new face of Bud Light. Guess what? Since then, Anheuser-Busch has suffered $3 billion of losses. So Nike, who recently also hired Dylan Mulvaney to promote its women's sportswear range, sports bras, even though Dylan Mulvaney is not a woman, she's a trans woman, uh, they might like to take note. Go woke and you go broke. Uh, so uh, let's talk to, uh, she's a host for Reasons, uh, Reasoned UK, uh, Jess Gill. Uh, good afternoon. Jess. Hi, Kev. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I mean, this is a story of our times, isn't it? That uh, Bud Light, uh, you know, basically a beer for good old Americans, a uh, very popular drink. Uh, America's most... By the way, I'm just... Uh, look. Excuse me, uh, Jess. Uh, there is President Biden. He's uh, on the red carpet at Phoenix House and he's meeting the Phoenix Park and he's meeting the uh, Irish president, Michael D. Higgins, uh, near Dublin as we speak. They're in bright sunshine. So for once, it's worth Joe wearing his aviator sunglasses. Uh, and there he is. So uh, a very happy moment. Uh, he's... He's in his home country and uh, he's loving every minute of it. He briefly, uh, yesterday, was in Northern Ireland. He spoke to Rishi Sunak uh, for what's been about 46 seconds. It was bilateral talks, according to Downing Street, bilate talks, according to Washington. They just shared a coffee, a uh, whistle-stop tour of Northern Ireland, then down to the south to Ireland proper. And uh, he has now been touring his home country. That's where his ancestors come from. Loves to say he's Irish. And there he is with the Irish president uh, as they walk into uh, the Irish, pre Irish president's uh, Splendid residence in Phoenix Park, just outside of Dublin. Uh, they've gone now, so uh, there you go. Uh, President Biden, there he is. Uh, and uh, what a scene. Uh, he, it's been called Joe Biden's holiday. 
uh, he said he would his mission was to preserve peace in Northern Ireland I don't know how you do that in about three hours flat uh, but uh, that's what he said there goes the beast the big American president's car armor plated of course uh, so I think we'll keep you updated uh, if we see anything more from that. So, Jess, let's return to the story. Thanks for bearing with me there. Yeah, Anheuser-Busch hired Dylan Mulvaney, the trans girl, uh, to promote, to be the new face of Bud Light. Since then, they've lost $3 billion. Uh, and uh, traditional Americans all over the States are saying, we're not buying this. We're not buying this beer while you've got this trans girl. Uh, on all of the cans promoting this beer. So it's costing Anheuser-Busch, the makers of Bud Light, one of the great drinks of America, a fortune. It's a classic story of go woke and you go broke, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. As if you don't need another reason not to drink Bud Lights, they're now appealing to gender ideology. Mm. I mean, this notion that trans people are really oppressed in the uh, in the West is complete nonsense. We've seen with Dylan Mulvaney, he's um, been sponsored by Nike, um, been sponsored by a load of makeup brands, and now Bud Lights. It's completely ridiculous. Um, and also, he's been endorsed by Joe Biden and a wave of politicians. Like, and, and at the same time as well. Um, I think it's quite depressing when it comes to Nike, for example, that he's basically taking these opportunities away from women. Uh, we've seen recently with the Riley Gaines story where this woman who was up against a trans swimmer, um, she felt that wasn't fair because obviously of different biology. Um, it's unfair for her. But because um, these companies want to appeal to woke ideology, they seem to push forward these biological men to take this place of women. And Nike to endorse that is just endorsing um, this trans ideology, which is basically pushing women out of these spaces. Yeah, women feel affronted by it. And I think uh, Nike's campaign, by the way, sorry to interrupt you again, Jess. Uh, we're just looking at uh, Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, who's been with him throughout this trip to the Emerald Isle. Uh, he's now uh, shaking hands with the dignitaries uh, on his way into the Phoenix Park residence of the Irish president, Michael D. Higgins. Uh, so all the family are there. It's quite a family outing. Uh, we'll keep you up to speed uh, with developments over there as they happen. Uh, now, uh, yes, you were saying, uh, you know, Dylan Mulvaney, I mean, Nike, uh, you might say, uh, you know, a good old traditional American drink like Bud Beer, maybe not a trans woman isn't the best way to sell it. Uh, and now we have uh, the Nike company, the bit sports giant, they're trying to sell, uh, use Dylan Mulvaney, who's not a woman, to promote women's sports bras. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. It's mad, isn't it? It's a complete smack in the face to these women athletes who have tried so hard, who have worked so hard to perform, and then they're up against biological men who they can't win against. Um, and by Nike um, supporting that, it's shown where their allegiances stand, not with their consumer base, but with this progressive virtue signalling. And as we've seen with Bud Light, I hope they go broke because they've gone woke. Well, I, I would uh, imagine that uh, shareholders uh, in Anheuser-Busch must be furious, must be furious that they've sought to uh, promote this beer uh, in such a woke way. It's been utterly disastrous. Three billion dollars. 
I mean, that's not a walk in the park, is it? That's unbelievable. Absolutely. I, and I think it shows that um, the establishment media, the establishment brands, these diversity inclusion officers um, and companies, um, organisations, aren't in touch with what consumers want and they've suffered the consequences of that this is pure capitalism if you don't appeal to the people you're trying to get to buy your product they're not going to support it and i think that's the greatness of it uh i should say that uh, dylan mulvaney uh has hit back saying that people just don't understand her uh you know uh great uh they, they might not but uh I know that uh, a lot of women feel that she's a sort of de almost like a de facto drag queen, that she lampoons femininity. She takes the mickey out of femininity uh, and, uh, frankly, is taking their jobs right now because it should be clearly a woman promoting sports bras for Nike. Why would you get a, 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 a biological man to advertise sports bras? It's unbelievable. Mulvaney doesn't represent what women act like. I don't know a single woman who acts like Dylan Mulvaney uh, with his Days of Girlhood um, video series. You can see that when um, Mulvaney is dressing up with heels going on a walk, um, frolicking around. No woman does that. It's just a complete parody of women. Um, Mulvaney acts more like a drag queen uh, rather than an actual woman. Mm. And you you can see that. It's a complete parody of women. And I'm surprised more women aren't standing up against this. I'm happy that women are standing up against this. But I think there needs to be a greater pushback because this person is clearly mocking women and what it means to be a woman. Quite a, quite a big pushback in the States, though, in terms of Bud Light. Uh, massive boycott going in. There's a... Uh... Uh, Dylan Mulvaney promoting Bud Light and uh, the drinkers of Bud Light all over America uh, have organised a massive boycott of this product and uh, it's costing Anheuser-Busch, the makers of Bud Light, an absolute fortune. I mean, the mind boggles as to who thought this would be a good idea. I think, um, so basically there was a video of one of the... Um, target campaign managers of Bud Light and they don't want to appeal to their consumer base they want to expand their audience because let's be honest who's drinking Bud Light anymore they want to expand it to perhaps like college girls in the states and all that kind of stuff um but I don't think that's the way forward I think you have to appeal to the type of people who enjoy your brand instead of trying to virtue signal to others who don't I and I, I think they've seen the consequences of that through this. Yeah, they are. And as I say, shareholders must be furious. Uh, Jess, great to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Jess Gill there. She's a host for uh, the Reasoned UK uh, stream. Uh, now, uh, we're going back to Phoenix Park uh, near Dublin, where President Joe Clinton, uh, Joe, Joe Clinton, Joe Biden uh, is sitting down at the desk there. He's, uh, if only it was Clinton, uh, he's signing some visitors book. Uh, we've got Michael D. Higgins, the president of Ireland behind him. Lots of flowers, very uh, formal. And uh, Hunter Biden, Joe's son, Joe's controversial son, uh, is with him. He's just gone into the house as well. Uh, so it's all going on at Phoenix Park. We'll keep you up to speed with that. And don't forget, uh, Royal Author 
royal author Robert Jobson will be with me in a little while to discuss his bombshell new book. Uh, uh, we're going to go to calls next. So give me a call. What do you think about the migrant crisis? Apparently, these migrants have brought across diphtheria, and we now have a big diphtheria problem in this country. Record numbers came across last week, 1,116. Uh, Rishi Sunak is not stopping the boats. Uh, what's to be done? And the French Navy, it seems, are escorting migrants into our waters. Uh, they took half a billion pounds from us uh, to cooperate with us to stop the migrant crisis. Instead, they seem to be using our money to escort, to ferry uh, migrants into British waters and onto our shores. What do you think? 0344 499 1000. Taking your calls next. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studios. By your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Well, here he is, the man of the moment, Toby. We've been waiting all morning. Old friend and colleague of mine, brilliant royal correspondent, fantastic author. His book, Our King, Charles III, The Man and the Monarch Revealed. Here it is. Uh, Robert Jobson's book is out today. And Robert Jobson is in the studio. Thanks very much for coming in, Robert. Uh, I, I nearly, I nearly didn't make it because yeah. I think it's nearly sixty. That's a long walk from yeah. Kipling Street. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say you're nearly sixty round the waist, mate. But uh, 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 that's uh, the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, congratulations on an excellent book. Thanks, I mean, mate. I, I, I obviously haven't had a chance to read it, but I read the brilliant yeah. serialisation in the they Daily, job, yeah. Daily Mail. Uh, and uh, first of all, I have to get your take on what you feel about the fact that Harry has finally revealed. He's coming to the coronation, but Meghan isn't. I thought it was rude that they didn't reply in the first place within the RSVP, but I think it's a good decision. I think it's pragmatic. Um, I don't think there's been any apologies, put it that way, you know, demands of this, demands of that. I don't think that's happened. Mm. Um, I think it's a pragmatic decision that obviously the Sussex made together. She's not coming, looking after the kids. The kids are very young. And I think that's wise as well. And, you know, everyone seems to blame Meghan for everything, it does seem to be, you know, in this country, because Harry's <laughs> Diana's son. <laughs> but actually, I think a lot of this is down to Harry and his petulance, you know. And, you know, at the end of the day, she's probably a little scared to come here and get booed and picked on. And it become a tabloid issue, a major, big issue that really would detract from the coronation in any way. So in a way, I think it's a good decision by them. Well, that was what was, uh, I found fascinating in your book, that, uh, of course, the narrative has always been, you know, all of these shenanigans, you know, uh, Megxit and, uh, you know, yeah. them dropping out of the royal family, going to California, their controversial new life, that it's all down to, uh, you know, dominating, domineering Megan. Yeah. But you say in your book, you reveal in your book uh, that, no, no, that isn't necessarily the case, that Harry has been very much a mover and shaker in all of this as well. I think a lot of the problem with Megan came uh, from her... Uh, untruth bombs, as I call them, in, in Oprah Winfrey, which was littered with, uh, dare I say it, lies. You know, the things that weren't true. Even the Archbishop of Canterbury had to correct them on saying that they, you know, they'd had a secret That's marriage. And he, and he said, well, no, you didn't. Otherwise, I'll be in the hot water. So, And maybe maybe a lot of it was down to her lost in translation. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not American. I don't know. But it does seem that since that moment, we the British turned on her, not so much him. Mm. But I think that he's, he probably is more of a driving force. And we only now realise that with all this stuff going on with him turning up in court mm. over the case against the Daily Mail. At the high, he didn't need to be there. He turns up, and, and, and on a time when his father is on an important state visit. So I think that we maybe should be looking more closer to home and to the way that Harry's behaving, 
um, rather than picking on Meg, because I think actually she's probably just quite content saying, oh, it's like going to a Christmas dinner, isn't it? You've got to go to the in-laws dinner and you say, <laughs> and you had an almighty row in the family and you just don't want to turn up. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, you know, that the media over here and in America as well has probably been uh, a little unfair to Harry insofar as we've always depicted him as the hen-pecked husband yeah. doing exactly what he's told, this powerful woman <laughs> saying, do this, do that. But you're right, when we saw him coming over to uh, the court because uh, he's taking action against the Mail on Sunday or the Associated Newspapers, uh, uh, he's clearly a, a driving force. I think so. Yeah. I think so. And I think that, you know, why would he suddenly go from being... The, you know, the cheeky Harry that we all sort of said, but this army captain that was a leader and, and praised by his, his men that were, fought alongside him in Afghanistan, strong man who fought against the army hierarchy, say, I must go to, on the front line, even though he could have taken a, a, a pen-pushing job yeah. somewhere. No, he's someone who's quite determined. I mean, he's got his mother's determination there, and he's got his father's determination too. So, look, I'm not saying that uh, Meghan's faultless, but I think she's certainly... She's certainly not the wicked witch of the north or the south, whatever it is. Well, uh, yeah, as a uh, journalist, and I'm sure you feel the same, uh, Rob, uh, I, I really wanted both of them to come to the coronation. But yeah. as a citizen of this country and a loyal subject of King Charles, I think we're all pretty relieved that she's not coming. And I would imagine that Charles and the royal family are relieved as well. I, I think Charles, the, I think the, is the, the king, his majesty, will be thrilled that both his sons are going to be there because it's his moment of destiny. And I think it's right that both your sons are there, as well as your, your, your wife, the queen, Queen Camilla. And I think he'd have been very disappointed if Harry hadn't turned up. Now, <laughs> are they, is there going to be relief? Yeah. I mean, I say in my book that, uh, that you know, Kate, Catherine, Princess of Wales, found it very difficult to do that Fab Four walkabout. Yeah, yeah, no, that was um, a great revelation. And uh, she confided that. And um, the very fact that, you know, that's awkward. Mm. Orcs, as they say, the young kids today. <laughs> hashtag orcs. Or hashtag orcs. And I think that would be the same for... Queen Camilla, really, because at the end of the day, there's the women there would have to, in their royal family, you know, a bit like Sophie, for example, she was turned down to be asked by the Queen to be a mentor, and Meghan said, no, I don't want that, I've got Harry. All these things that the women really uh, would be quite difficult, difficult place to go for Meghan. Uh so, uh, you know, we're hearing uh, that the King is very thrilled that Harry is coming, despite all the brickbats he's been throwing at the royal family over the last couple of stormy yeah. years, you know, calling the fa royal family racist, his dad mean. Well, then he pulled back on that, didn't he? So he yeah, that's were right, he did. Deeply yeah. unconscious bias. But there's a great revelation in this book about which Ken Wolfe, my old pal, the yeah, diner's bodyguard, yeah, um, said, he said they went out on a diner arranged for them to have a, a tour of London on a, on a red bus. And on the bus, um, there was a, a Punjabi bus conductor with a big yellow turban. And Harry kept, every time the guy rang the bell, they rang the bell for someone to get off, because they were on with ordinary punters. He then made this, mock, he mocked the guy, this sort of eight, as eight-year-olds were. I'm not going to say on radio what he said, but he basically... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I've had enough trouble. But he said he said something, and um, they got, and Dinah got him off the bus and gave him a clip around the ear for doing it. He said, don't you ever say anything like that again, or be racist Again, and that you know, we talk about unconscious bias. I think she nearly knocked him unconscious, according to Ken. But then afterwards, it's not as Diana would, she asked him to write a letter to Ken to thank him for everything. Yeah, yeah. Wrote him a letter, said, Thank you so much, Ken, for waking this day. I'm sorry I behaved like I did. And then he ended it, signed it, Harry. And then afterwards, he put the phrase that he used on the bus. <laughs> well, um. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, he um, he was a mischievous kid. Uh, but it's interesting you just say Diana. But he was a kid. That's yeah, the point. Yeah, exactly. Isn't it? He's only yeah. eight years old. We'll, get, we'll cut him some slack on that one. But uh, it's interesting that his mum stepped in. Uh, because in those days, we weren't quite, as a nation, quite so sensitive about racism. Well, so she, she, was stepped, she was stepped in, but so did the king. I mean, the king would have been furious on Prince Wales. Yeah. There's one thing, I mean, there were, look, Kevin, we were around at the time. And, yeah, we were. And, and uh, they, were, they, would, they disagreed on a lot of things, Charles and Diana. There was the famous War of the Walses. Yeah. But they certainly agreed on one thing, that their kids were not going to be racist and would be picked up on it if they were. Well, good for them. Uh, now, uh, as I say, the King is thrilled that uh, Harry is coming and probably very relieved that Meghan isn't. Uh, so there's been, usually is in these situations, talk of rapprochement. Uh, now, I, there's not going to be any rapprochement between William and Harry, is it? The feuding brothers. Uh, that is a bitter rift, isn't it? I, I can't see that one healing over a, a ping pong visit, visit by, by Harry to London. You know, he's in and out in a, in a flash, I'm sure. And uh, where do you think, uh, I mean, I'm just sort of picking your brains here, but where do you think uh, Harry might sit in the congregation? There have been quips that he'll be back at the, in the back row next to his wicked uncle, Prince Andrew. I don't think they've probably worked that all out yet. Mm. I mean, I think that this is an important occasion for the king. They're both his sons, I suspect. Um, like, the, like the seating arrangements for the memorial service for the Duke of Edinburgh, I think the children will be in the front, all the children, including Andrew, are in the front row, and I think that, in that case, so will Harry. Uh, as you alluded to earlier, I think uh, uh, Catherine, I, keep, I always call her Kate, uh, she doesn't like that, does she? Uh, Catherine, the Princess of Wales, she will be very relieved that Meghan isn't coming. And let's face it, she can't stand her, can she? Come on, that's true, isn't it? All I'd, all I'd say is, this, in this book about the king... Um, <laughs> no, we're going to go uh, over the uh, king uh, in a minute, uh, right? Yes, the, 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 I, look, I think, look, put it this way, Catherine is, a, is, a, is a raised by a great family. She's a middle-class girl that's, that's held her own in this family for a long time. I think that she would be able to handle anything. OK, uh, I'd say she'd be, she'll be pleased that uh, her nemesis is not coming. Uh, let's talk. It's about our king. It's about King Charles and a, a very timely book it is too. Uh, before we go into a few details, what kind of a... You must have met him a few times. Hmm. What kind of a bloke is he? What kind of a man is he? Oh, he's a deep-thinking, spiritual man. A man, I think, is thoroughly decent. I know that there are people say, how can you be thoroughly decent? If you've been divorced and you cheated on Diana with Camilla, well, you know, we're all human. I mean, I've been married a few times. Yeah, so, just trying to know, count. Yeah, right? I just thought, well, One, I'm, going to admit, well, I'm not going to admit to. But the fact is, what I'm saying is that he is, uh, he takes his duty very seriously. He not only cares, though, he's a, he's a deep thinking man in terms of the planet, too. And I think we're really blessed, actually, at this stage we're at with climate change and all the stuff that's going on with somebody who cares about that it cares about the commonwealth and therefore can link that role as head of the commonwealth together where a third of the world's population are influenced to make a difference when it comes to the planet that we're all on and let's face it it's not the planet the planet will survive it's just whether we survive on it that's for sure uh, and we know that one of his deep uh, hatreds is confrontation he's a great man for the quiet life he's a man of the country more than the city yeah i mean somebody that you know i think that you know it's easy to be at one with nature if you've got homes but it's less easy if you're in the middle of the east end somewhere you know to be at one with nature but things are improving the mm. And then, you know, things that go on there. But I think that he certainly, for example, on the, 
the cusp of destiny when his mother was was very very poorly um, towards coming towards the end of her life. Princess Royal was with her. He went back. The doctor said that there's no change. Went back to Burkhall and just went off with his walking stick and a basket of coppers that these bodyguards left him alone. He went into the forest to pick mushrooms. You know, the people might think, oh, what a ridiculous thing to do. But he's, what, what he's doing is he's, he's, he's one with nature. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the river Mick is flowing in the background. The birds are singing. Yeah. Well, why not? And that's his perfect environment. How, how hurtful has it been to the king uh, to see this, uh, to be honest with you, escalating feud, bitter feud between his two beloved sons? Well, I'm a dad. I mean, dad would hate it, wouldn't you? I mean, you'd hate it. But, um, you know, I'm, luckily I've got one, one son, so his only feud is going to be with himself. Um, but I'd say it must be terribly painful because, you know, he's got, to, he's got to wear two hats. One of them's a crown. But, you know, he's always going to be a dad to both of these boys. And he, he would want them and has implored them both to heal this rift and would hope it would go away. But, you know, you, you can lead a horse to water. But you can't make it drink. Uh, what's the future for the king? I mean, he must have been. Uh, I mean, he's obviously a very forgiving guy because we learn today that uh, he's thrilled uh, to use a quote, uh, you know, royal sources and all that. That his darling boy is coming yeah. to the uh, congreg- the coronation. But after what's been going on and the the spare that Harry's book leveling all sorts of allegations against his dad. He's mean, wouldn't give me any money, you know, he's a racist and so on and so forth. Mm. Uh, uh, his capacity for uh, forgiving uh, is enormous, is it not? Well, he's the, he's the supreme governor of the Church of England, so, you know, it's forgiveness is Final job, yeah. But, I mean, <laughs> seriously, because Harry leveled a lot of charges, it doesn't it like did, but actually when you read much. spare, I know, you would have thought, with an expensive Italian education, he could have probably written himself, but he had to get someone to write it for him. But if you read it, um, I think that uh, the king actually doesn't come out of it that badly. I think that he comes out, out of it, you know, he always, he clearly loved his son, my darling boy, and he clearly did everything he could, but he was a very busy man, and, you know, he was older dad, and was probably a little bit, you know, he had a difficulty because he had a very, a mother, a wife in Diana that they were clearly not together. And, um, and she was dominating that role as as the parent. So mm-hmm. I think that he did everything he could mm-hmm. uh, in the circumstances that he was in. So this is your book. It's Our King, uh, Charles III, The Man and the Monarch by uh, Robert Jobson, Sunday Times bestselling author. When I read this, and I will, uh, what do you think I knew I might learn about our sovereign? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the serialisation in the the, the Man on Sunday covered a lot of the stuff that the the, um, the newspapers would want to cover. But I think you need to read it in its entirety rather than stopping at a, a particular bit. And I think you will learn a lot about him. Um, I think you'll learn a lot about his honesty. You learn about his um, his de- desire his, his desire for duty and his and really, I think you'll learn also of his uh, great capacity of and patience to deal with situations that he's dealing with here but most of all i think you'll realize that he is a, he's the man for the moment he's the man to be the king of the first king of the 21st century and he um will make the world a better place if he can just the last word uh robert his relationship with his mother was at times quite strained Hmm. But he seemed absolutely devastated when she died. I mean, hardly surprising that a woman of 95, you know, uh, departs this mortal coil. Uh, but uh, Charles was 
It looked as if he was uh, devastated. Well, I mean, you know, we all... Well, anyone who's lost a parent knows it doesn't matter if they're... Yeah. I mean, my dad was only 62, but, you know, it doesn't matter if they're 62 or 96. You, you are absolutely distraught. Yeah, yeah. And I think that uh, both the loss of his father and his mother, is talk about it in the book, it, it was um, the last farewells. I think once his, his father parted, and um, I think it was... Um, they'd healed any problems they'd had at the end. But with his mother, I think he knew he, her time was up and coming to an end. And he spent, every time he could, he spent had dinner with her at Windsor. They spent a lot of time talking. And I think any issues that were there, they were certainly uh, gone by the time they, she passed. A last quick question. Uh, it's been great talking to you. Thanks so much uh, for getting in here. <laughs> um, how, long did it take you, how long did it take you to write? Um, to write, not that long, uh, probably eight months, something like that, but to to research it, I've been thinking about it for you know many years. I wrote a book called Charles at 70, and I felt that um, it wasn't, it didn't do, I, I wanted to do it a different way. I wanted to, in, in that book, I didn't talk about the Diana years and all that. I just was talking about what he did at 70. This one is a very chronological book and an excellent editor, lots of new stories in it, lots of new insights. But thanks to Barry Johnson, he turned it into English, so that's good. Aha, come on, you're a good writer. <laughs> How many people did you talk to? How many people did you interview? Quite a lot of people, but I never talk about sources, you know. Oh, I wasn't going to get you to name them. <laughs> but they've tried. Them. Richard Madeley tried. He said, where'd you, where'd you get this? <laughs> I said, as Harry Arnold used to say, the king asked him where he get his story from, and he went, there's one, there's another one. <laughs> yeah, and that's how you do it. Uh, Rob, thanks so much for coming in. Robert Jobson, royal author, our king. It's in all good bookshops, Amazon, all that today. This is the publication day. Have a read. It's going to be well worth it. Thank you so much, Rob. Uh, here you go, Robert Jobson. When we come back, we're having a few drinks uh, with Helen and Nicklin uh, from The Three Drinkers. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV, live from the Talk Radio studios. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.